up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. Hello, this is Ralph Edwards, Acker, Warren from the Concrete Gang, and I'll be presenting a fill-in Concrete Gang show during their well-earned summer break. This is part of an ongoing series called Creatures of the Industry, and that's going to record the people who made our industry over the last 50 years as they reflect on that history and their time in it. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains. And break a couple of concrete floors to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. Got a fighting history and we never will be cowed Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud Hello to all the listeners. We are at the inaugural conversation about the history of the construction industry in Victoria with the redoubtable Murray Hill. Good morning, Murray. How are you? Good morning, Ralph. And we might start by just getting a few details, Murray, about when you first came into the industry and how you uh, got started and what it was like back then. Well, I probably come from a pretty different background than most people in the union movement. I was born and bred in a little town called Sonata, up in the Wimmera. I left school when I was 14. My first job was at Motorspears. Had a very bad boss. I walked out on him at 14. Then I worked for a... Well, you were a troublemaker all along, were you? That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so then I worked for a um, fabrication company, welding up farm machinery and steel sheds and putting up steel sheds and fuel tanks and all the rest of it. I was a self-taught welder. I worked there for a few years. I worked um, also for a tractor cabin company in Ararat and at that stage I also worked as a Caldex distributor in Sonata driving a truck for for a Caldex distributor but at that stage I probably knew nothing about unions never seen a union I think the first time I ever saw a union official was falling out of the Gason's factory in Ararat and some bloke was at the door there, some union official. After that, I had a pretty serious accident there in Geelong, head-on crash down in Geelong. Spent seven months in Geelong Hospital. And, of course, up, up until then, I had no contact with unions whatsoever. I didn't know anything about unions. But a little bit of trucking experience, I got a job with a company called Transwest, Carton Fuel Oil. And um, with that... They wasn't a very good company. We used to get paid trip money and they were ripping us off blind. And I dare say I woke myself up to myself. Was then they give me four tyres for my car. I said, oh, there's something wrong here. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I had a bit of a thing and I think my support, I've got to say, and I got, I was putting on the wages. 
well, used to cut sulfuric acid and all that sort of stuff, but got us put on to wages. And of course, I'd know they didn't like me much after that, didn't like me at all. But, mate, I dare say, was carting bricks one time. A truck in front of me got bogged, and we worked all through lunch getting him out of the bog and went back and they said, you want to get paid? And I said, yes. And they said, well, they wanted to sack me. And that stage, Trans West had a lot of trouble with new brick in Melbourne, all the brick carters. And the brick carters got to hear about it. They uh, d- decided if you don't fix fix this up, if you don't put him back on, then you're going to lose your contract with new brick. So the next day I got called in the office and I was told... Um, Look, and we're very sorry about all this whole thing, Murray. Not until we looked at your taco graph that we saw what you were doing. So they put me back on. But I was smart enough then to realise what a union was all about. And I was smart enough them days to get put on the executive of the um, transport workers in Geelong. Anyway, to make a long story short... Finish up, I finished up leaving there, went to work on the wharf in Geelong on the cranes and um, had a very good relationship with Transwest after that. They wasn't going to ring me and I wasn't going to ring them. <laughs> so, Murray, life's experience made you into a unionist. Oh, definitely, definitely, yep. But in terms of the construction industry, you went to the wharves. How did you then go from the maritime industry into construction? Well, down the wharf, after tug strikes in Geelong, the steel stopped coming into Geelong. And so it was last on first off, so most of us got the big A, you know. In the meantime, I bummed around doing this and that and got a little job on a little crane for the waterworks and, and the LS come and chased me for a crane driver. So I went to work in mobile cranes which eventually definitely went back to Wharf and I noticed things had gone different then and they changed me to go back to, to the crane company again. So, so I become, is... become the delegate. I was co-delegate on the Wharf and then I became the delegate at Brambles. And uh, So you really came into the industry through the mobile crane sector. Yes. And in those days, that would have been the FEDFA. That's right, yeah. And well, I first joined the FEDFA... Because them days, the crane drivers on the wharf was FEDFA. Ah, so mm. the gantry cranes and all that uh, yep. were all FEDFA. That's right, yeah. yeah. All the portals were all FEDFA. And then when I went back there, that's about when they changed over to be all watersiders. Ah. And of course, when I went back to work for the crane company, there wasn't much support there. And I used to feel sorry for Pat Preston. He used to come down and do his best, and nobody was backing him much, so I got pretty involved in there. And that stage it was Brambles, and I didn't have any love with Brambles, and they didn't have much love for me either. <laughs> well, Brambles uh, stayed around for a long time in the mobile crane sector and also the industry generally, but um, you didn't stay at Brambles. I worked for Brambles, yeah. It went from Ellett's to Brambles... Which is the same they sold that to Brambles. And then, of course, deregistration came along. And Pat Preston asked me to come on board as a temporary union official, which I did. So can you remember which year that was? 86. So it was right in the middle of dereg. My first day as a union official was 
the first day of deregistration. <laughs> first of March. First of March. Yeah. They kept me on for three months and those rambles finished up saying, well, look, are we going to get him back? I thought we don't want the bastard back. And uh, so I went back to work for a few weeks and then they got me back on. I've been on there ever since, you know. Yeah. So in terms of mobile cranes, which is not necessarily all in construction because, as you and I both are fully aware, the mobile crane industry is somewhat of a separate sector which has serviced many different parts of industry and construction is an important part but it's not the only part. Did you always work in the metals area and so on or did you cross into construction as such? Well, down around Geelong, you was in everything. At that stage, there was construction at Alcoa, there's construction putting the malt house in there, the big wool sheds and all the rest of it. Plus, I used to spend a lot of time in the Shell Refinery and into Alcoa and the cement works and all those places. I oh. dare say when I come on board for the union, Pat Preston used to look after the mobile crane industry and I sort of worked as a backup to him. But them days, you'd have cranes working all over the place without dogmen and close to power lines and Christ knows what, you know. Mm. And my name went through the entry like you wouldn't believe because I used to send all the cranes back to the yard. As soon as the crane without a dogman, I'd send him back to the yard, of course. <laughs> but eventually that worked out right because nowadays there's always a dogman there, you know. And, of course, now we've got rules about sitting close to power lines and all the rest of it. And I think we might have avoided a couple of deaths through that, you know. Yeah. In terms of when you first came into the construction industry through mobile cranes, what was the state of the industry at that time? Was it well organised? Was it health and safety conscious? What do you reckon was the industry as you knew it, obviously in Geelong, but it would have been reflective of the industry much more widely. Health and safety was nothing like it is now. But um, when I went to work for the union, of course I wasn't just around Geelong, I was fed for the pepper and salt union where we used to go around, I think it was from Thomastown all over the state I used to go, you know. And so I learned a hell of a lot about the construction industry then. And I've got to tell you, sometimes I'd be driving around and I'd be bloody lost in Melbourne, didn't know where the Keller was, you know, and you see a, a crane. Few, a few people would say that's common to Geelong that's, people. That's and I'd see a, cr- a, cr- a crane bloody jib sticking up somewhere, and oh, that was too much for me, so I'd have to go and <laughs> end up see what was going on. I'd find this construction site there, and I said, well, How did you find us here? You know, <laughs> little I tell them I was lost, but <laughs> and the cranes in those days, uh, we can remember some of the. Uh, dinosaurs that used to run around when you became a FEDFA official had the quality and sophistication of cranes improved or was there still a lot of the old clunker things running around? Oh back in them days those all you know nine ton crane was a big crane a 20 ton was a big crane but nowadays you know 50 tonners of them and taxi crane like, mm. I mean you wouldn't entertain them there you'd What's around today, you know? Today, in those days, of course, the mobile crane was a supplement 
and most of the lifting was done either by tower cranes or by pin jibs. And did you have much to do with the pin jibs and that on the big construction sites? A little bit, not a lot on the on the tower cranes. What about the pin jibs and that? Oh, well, they were mobile cranes, you know, they'd be all over the place, yeah. you know. And was that a, a, a somewhat different sector with different attitudes to the hydraulic cranes or pretty much the same? Well, no, your tower cranes are virtually confined to where there's a construction site. You know, people work there all the time. That's their mm. job until mm. the job finishes. With mobile cranes, you might spend a day on a job you might spend a day in a petrochemical or in a cement works or an Alcoa or wherever it might be, but you move from place to place. And the big thing, as far as I'm concerned, with the union was um, their opening to get into other places. Now, the smaller building sites and all this, that's where we used to make gains, you know. If you're on a tower crane, you're on that job until the job's finished. And with a mobile crane, you're virtually all over the place. And you never know where you go on that day. You never know what time the phone's going to ring after hours and you'd call back into work and all the rest of it. So I think for far as the union's concerned, the mobile cranes was a big opening for the construction union. Instead of being, having a few big sites that... Not a few sites, but they had big sites that they had their power at, they also found that they had a lot of smaller sites where you could pick up a lot of members. And you can improve a lot of conditions as well, you know. Well, in terms of the conditions, the pay wasn't all that good, as I would recall. Mm. It wasn't. But it, in that period of the 1980s, things started to change. And what was the sort of rates that people were on when you were driving mobile cranes and how did they work out those mm. rates and where did you get to, do you think, during mm. that period? Well, I think... Back in them days, you're on about equivalent to a truck driver's wages. Now, Pat Preston used to hold delegates meetings once a month for the crane hire people, but he had a deal going with the crane hirers. The meetings got to be in the afternoon. And there's about four people turned up, and they all come from different Brambles places. By the time I got back to Geelong and started firing a few bullets, they knew what I was going to do because someone had been the men had already told them what was going on. <laughs> So uh, I probably changed all that to build a construction... If I build a construction meeting around the Tuesday, the crane I meet me on Wednesday afternoon, but I changed that. I made, I could see her from there doing things for the, for the construction workers, so I brought them back in the same day. And so the crane I people go to the construction people and then have their own meeting after, which I think brought in a lot of improvements. And yet that's why, back in the old days, I can remember trying to catch up with the building industry and I think eventually we caught up with the building industry, you know. I wouldn't sell yourself short, Murray. I think you went past the building industry. Well, I think we deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> On a serious point, yeah. the rates of pay would have improved more dramatically in the 1990s, perhaps in the 80s. The 80s was where you were trying to establish a decent rate compared to the truck driver rate. Uh, but would the 1990s have been a more productive period in terms of the outcomes? That would have happened as EBA started. And I'd have a free run with EBAs. But up until then, you was always told by Sydney that 
it's a federal award and you can't do this and you can't do that. Well, the EBAs that allowed us to get round that. And maybe you could say, yeah, we've got to pass the bill entry in places, but there's a lot of qualifications being a mobile crane driver too. And that is, you aren't always going where there's a good amenities, where you get looked after. You've got to go to a site and then work it out for yourself what you're going to do. It could be going to derailment, it could be anything. And of course, you know, those blokes that haven't got a licence haven't got a job. And also, you'll find that um, the machines they're driving today, not back in them days, I suppose they're worth a quid in them days, but not that much, but the machines they're driving around in today are worth millions of dollars. So they've got a lot of responsibility, you know. But the one of the upsides for the crane oil industry is in the construction industry, you've got a job which might go for three, six, twelve months or something, then she's all over Red Rover, yeah. and you've got to find another job, and that could take time to do it. Mm. Those crane eye blokes are probably lucky because mm. it continues on and on and on. Yeah. You know? With the EBAs, what do you think was the breakthrough in terms of rates, conditions? The award's always been there, but yeah. the, the, and the EBA is based on the award, but is there any particular breakthroughs that you can remember? There, was, there were some blues, if I yeah. also recall. Oh, some blues. One thing, and Paddy Preston started it, was the situation with sight lounges and mobile cranes. Because what used to happen, or what Pat done, he brought in this dollar fifty an hour sight lounge, no matter where you worked, which was a great thing, because the boys that used to suck up to the boss, they used to go to all the good sites, and the bloke that liked to stick up for himself a bit, he used to go to the sites, got nothing. So at least that way it evened things out, so everybody got this, got that a dollar fifty. And probably where it worked for me and EBAs is. Perhaps the crane hires weren't smart enough to realise what an all-purpose rate was. And, of course, when we started the all-purpose rate, that worked out very well for the blokes, you know. Overtime on a weekend. Overtime. <laughs> and, yeah, on, the, on the mobile crane, I used to get some bloody great things. Like, you'd be called out all hours of the night to Elkar or Shell and all those places. Or The bunkers on ships were a great one. And in the award, if you cracked midnight and second to four hours double time, you get eight hours double time. So that used to work out really good, you know. That's how you used to make your money. Are there any other breakthroughs that you can remember after the introduction of EBA, say through to the early 2000s? No, the only thing, perhaps on the health and safety side of things, we had a couple of fatalities with power lines. And we were pretty close to the chief electric inspector then and they took a lot of advice off us and we got the rules made on how far you could work from a power line and things like that. I think that saved a few blokes over the time. But things like that definitely improved and the fact that was always working with a dogman, that improved too because you know, once upon a time you used to go to a site and they'd expect you to be jumping out of your crane and, and do the dogging yourself, you know. So all those things improved, you know. With the introduction of the EBAs, a lot more detail went into wages and conditions and allowances and so on. Was there any marked differences in the allowances and you mentioned side allowance, but other allowances and other provisions in terms of penalty rates and so on? No, virtually 
that dollar, which went to a dollar fifty nine, and become an all-purpose rate, sort of overcome most of that, you know. Yeah. And whether you're sent up to the biggest shithole in town to work, you still got it rather than you go to a prime site. And if if the site did pay more, then they used to make up the difference. Yeah. Now, in terms of the equipment, in the eighties, we were seeing fifty-ton cranes coming on the scene. How do you think the capacity of cranes changed over the period from, say, 86 through to 2006? Oh, they've got bigger and bigger. But um, when I first came on scene, some of those cranes looked all right, but they were in pretty bad nick getting around town. Like I said, they'd be working with that dogman up against power lines. And, and for a start, you send the crane back to the yard and the blacks be shitting themselves and the bosses would be carrying on and all the rest of it. But then after a while, as the blokes started getting used to it and you start talking about the condition of their crane and they'd be saying to you quietly, well, did you have a look at that outrigger on the other side there? And so they were starting to see the benefits of getting machines up up to scratch and, and with safe machines. And then, of course, the other thing that happened in the finish was when we were vocally starting crane safe with the 12-month crane inspections. And I think that improved things out of sight as far as Instead of cranes getting dilapidated, they had an inspection every 12 months and they had to be brought up to scratch or... Well, people take that, the green sticker... That's right, yeah. ...as a basic requirement. It's even now being uh, recognised and enforced by WorkSafe. That's right, yeah. ...who have taken themselves a long time to get up to scratch. Didn't they what? <laughs> but when do you think that really started having an effect with... the with the more reputable companies, because Crane Safe is a non-government uh, yep. body and therefore can't enforce yep. its uh, rulings. Well, SICA, Crane Safe Cancer for Australia, they put their money where their mouth is, and and they probably run the thing. You know, like back in my days, we used to have the excesses have a meeting every quarter, and I used to go along and I used to have a fair bit of say, and and so from there it's things. It's got better and better. They've got engineers working from it all now. So I think that sort of come in pretty quickly because people could see it was the advantage of it. Can you remember Mm -hmm. when the first green stickers were actually issued? Would I be correct? I can't remember the top of me. Would I be correct in saying late 90s? Possibly. In fact, the first green sticker actually had the FEDFA emblem written on it as well, Mm -hmm. which I'd imagine would be gone now. Yeah. So... In terms of other developments that went along with the green sticker and the issue of power lines and so on, are there any other issues that stand out as being serious and correct advances in in, uh, health and safety? Christmas trees? Yeah, (laughs) that was another thing, the Christmas trees. At that stage, there's always somebody wanted a bit more out of the crane, what it'll do. And that was a way of trying to educate the drivers and the dogmen and the client to say, well, this is as far as the crane can go. You know, you can't get that extra bloody metre because if you do, it'll fall over. So how did the Christmas tree actually work? Well, the green light's on the Christmas tree. Then you get to 90% of your capacity, the orange light comes on. Then you're 100%, the red light comes on. I don't know how it goes now with the new computerized stuff, whether they still survive. I don't know how that works, but most cranes today, they won't do it. And see, with a hydraulic crane, it's a bit different to a pin jib. The 
jib on a hydraulic crane is often very heavy. And when you get out enough radius, sometimes it'll fall over that and on the hook even, you know, so. But with a hydraulic, that's where the advantage of a hydraulic for radius, you know. Uh, a, yeah, I'm sorry, with a pin jib, you know. In terms of improvements, the hydraulics were the area which you were particularly concentrating on. What about the pin jibs? Did pin jib issues arise for you right through that period as well? Well, yeah, it's all interlocked, I suppose. And I've seen a, a few pin jibs that popped the lattice work and that because it's been overloaded. But but um, pin jibs are probably a smaller market than nearly every hydraulic crane these days. So for long-term on-site, the pin jibs are probably often more, more suitable, you know? Yeah, and in fact, they usually have a greater capacity. Or At radius, should, yes. Or should I say, used to have a greater capacity. <laughs> now now the world is changing but, yet yeah. again. But the pin jibs uh, were always a problem in the industry. Not that they went over, but people did yeah. try to stretch them. Oh, yeah. In terms yeah, of yeah. radius. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing, perhaps I should have said before, was um, the training now. I think the training's a lot better than what it ever was. I remember in my days getting a call out into Shell Refinery once where I had to put a fly on a crane. I'd never done it before in a petrochemical. And you just had to learn the way you was going. But today you trained all those things. And so there's no more of that um, working out as you go sort of thing. Now, I was leading you, of course, about pin jibs. And I think it probably would be worthwhile just having a talk about some of the major disasters that took place. Not just with pin jibs, but also with hydraulics, but I'd maybe suggest that we start off with Karaya Bridge. The Sergi Bridge? Yes. That action should never have happened. If you could explain what happened yeah. and how it happened. Well, the bridge over the railway line there, they had false work up, and the beams were about, I think it was around about 80 tonne from memory. And so one end of the beam had landed on the false work, Leighton's, in their wisdom, had used a lot of the false work out of the Laverton Yard, which was rusted through, and there was no tolerance anyway. And, of course, the last beam, the false work collapsed as the crane let the weight off, and so the beam come down, and Rob Surge was up top, and he got hit in the back of the head with the equaliser plate, and, and the rest is history. But um, that, that was one of the bad ones. In fact, if that accident hadn't have happened, our independent engineer... I can't recall his name, Ralph, you might recall it. Uh, he believed a train coming up there, that bit of a rise, fully laden on Monday morning, would have been enough to pull a whole 400 tonne of beams down on top of it. Would have been like Grafton in New South Wales. So that was one of the bad ones, you know. But there were, over the, over the journey, your journey, a number of serious collapses. Machines used to go over on their side on a pretty regular basis. How do you think we are today compared to where we were? As we have today, looked at a whole lot of pictures that uh, show cranes on their side, cranes with the boom basically in, in parts and, uh, and so on. How, where do you reckon we are today? Well, I think with the new cranes, with the computerisation and that, you can't go over the radius. And also, um, 
on the pick and carry type cranes. We used to do it on a little old truck with a nine ton crane behind it. You sit in an awkward position and you'd have to try to manoeuvre this load round. Today you've got these franners that can pick and carry a 25 or ton loader with no problems at all, you know. It's a lot safer way of just doing what we used to do it. And are there any particular cranes that you might have a view about uh, that they haven't improved? Is there is there still issues out there? I'd say if you go up the back blocks, you'd probably find a few, but I think generally if people want to compete in the market down this way in Melbourne and Geelong and the provincial cities, I think cranes have improved and with, with um, crane safe and things like that, then they just wouldn't get through to keep working. Okay, I'm Ralph Edwards and I'm presenting Creatures of the Industry, a fill-in show during the Concrete Gang's well-earned summer break. Now, one of the other health and safety issues that the industry has had a problem with is the amount of hours that go in and the fact that people are fatigued. Well, and there is, at this point, a prosecution outstanding for a fatality that occurred on the Ring Road. And evidence would suggest that fatigue for the crane driver is still an issue. Yep. And that used to be the case very much with the brib beams, Ralph. And you might remember we did a um, code of practice on bridge beams. And one of the issues was where blokes have been working all day, then they expect to go and put these bridge beams up at night. And so they wasn't really switched on anyway, you know. So very much fatigue, yes. And I dare say money comes into it there where the blokes seem to think, well, beauty, you know, a few extra bobbin. But, you know, they should, it is bad, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to work double shifts and things like that. And, of course, the companies like to think, oh, well, this is all right too. We get getting more money out of it as well, you know. So I don't know how much that's become an issue in the later years, but back in my days it was an issue, yes. Well, I think the EBA has in more recent times addressed that. But I'm interested in trying to get your feel of where the crane sector is compared to where it was when you started. Are there any things that you think are outstanding improvements or things that maybe should have been dealt with a long time ago? Well, I think it's totally different now to what it was back in my day, especially as I come on as an organiser when I was driving cranes myself. Compare it to today and it's totally different. Like, you know, safety's a lot better and somebody watching to make sure it is, you know. But, no, it's a different game to what it was. No, it wouldn't have survived the way it was now that today if you come out and try to do things that we used to do back in them days. Well, part of the problem is it's uh, between computers and GPS, uh, someone who manufactured the crane in Holland can be actually monitoring what you're doing with a crane in yes, Melbourne. That's right. yeah, yep. It does make a difference, but... There's always been problems with cheating and uh, pushing there people. And mm. I guess you're right, there always will be. Mm. Now, in terms of the industry, in more general terms, the construction industry in Melbourne and Victoria, where do you think the industry is from your perspective now compared to when you first started getting involved? I think what's happened where there used to be the hardcore building and construction industry... I think that's all been married in a lot. So you've got a lot more interaction and the delegates all go to the same meeting and um, and also, like, you know, um, I think the industry spread us a wing a lot more and they work together a lot better than what it was, you know. 
And back in them days, like, you know, nobody cared. When I first heard, nobody cared much about the civil industry. Well, now I think that's become a lot more part of the industry anyway. In my view, as far as the union's concerned, I think the civil industry is very important to it. Because when there's peaks and troughs in the building industry, when they get a trough in the building industry, they usually the civil industry will carry you through. And it's a bit like a business, you've got to keep going. And that's where I think the old FEDFA used to survive as a small union. Back in them days, they had some people in the construction industry, they had their boiler attendants, the SECV, the owner up, all those sort of things, you know. And I think all those industries kept it going. Like when one part died down, the other part kept them going. And I think that's something that the union should keep in mind very much that not just be a construction, building construction industry, because when there's a bit of a downturn, the civil industry will keep them going, you know. And I think back in the old days, that's where things broke down with the BWIU. When the building industry went quiet, there was they used to find themselves the financial problems, you know. That's only my opinion, too. No, that's you're more than welcome <laughs> to have your opinion, Laurie. Now, the people that you've met in the industry as you've gone through and you're now in retirement, and I'm sure you're still having contact with some of the older brothers and sisters, but also with some of the newer people. But are there any people that you think stand out in the history of the industry in this city and state who have done a bit above and beyond the normal? That's a hard question, Ralph. It doesn't have to be officials, but people mm. people who have actually made a contribution to the industry, which has been telling in your in your estimation. Well, I think most of them have, in their own way. You seem to have some people in the industry that seem to put their hand out for what they can get, and you've got others that do what they can, what they can for the industry. And I think that's what kept the industry going. And I think in retirement, what you miss more than anything is those people that you work with in the union. So... I think that's what you miss in the industry when you retire. It's not the stuff that goes on and, and issues and so forth. It's the people that you that you worked with that had a bit of principle and wanted to do their thing. So, in terms of what is now the CFMEU and the FEDFA was amalgamated into the CFMEU, it operated separately for some time and then was incorporated fully into the CFMEU. Do you think the incorporation of the FEDFA into the construction and general branch was completely productive or did we lose some things on the way through? Yes, you lose some of the things as an organisation gets big, it doesn't come more personalised, it's more generalised. You know, I think that's what you would. But having said that, there's a lot of pluses to it too. Of course. <laughs> yep. I'm trying to get a, a a more broader view of where you think the union, in general terms, is in the industry. When we all talk, we can all tell war stories, and we can all talk about the glory days, and this one busted a concrete pour, and this one went on strike for six weeks, and and so on. But where do you reckon 
unionism is in the industry at the moment? Well, that's a problem with some I can't answer, off because I've been at it for 12 years now, a bit over 12 years. Time but passes quickly, doesn't it? It does, yeah, yep. So I can't really see firsthand what's going on, you know. And I think back in towards the end of my time, nothing to do with me, but towards the end of my time, that's where the Sephemy year really was going well, you know. But I think now with the Royal Commissions and um, the Royal Commissions and having the bloody governments doing, it's not just breaking down the building construction industry in the CFMEU, it's breaking down workers full stop everywhere. So it'd be very hard to compare with what we had to what we got today. And I do think what we used to get away with back in my day, they'd throw the keys away if you tried to do it today. I'm sure of it, you know. Mm. The government has really weakened the union movement full stop. And maybe the union movement hasn't helped itself at, at certain times because, just reflecting back, all that stuff with the accord and all the rest of the cooperation with government and so on ended up blowing up in people's faces. Oh, it did, yeah, yeah, yep. And when you look at... The sad part about it, when you look at... I'm not here to knock anybody, but when you look at some of the people that was going places in the union movement and they jumped the fence completely. That's just a disgrace, you know. And even blokes like Kelty that went to work for Linfox and mm. and people in the old FEDFA and I don't want to name names, but um, in the old FEDFA and other unions as well, just jumped the fence into the employer side of it. And the funny thing I always found was too, if I just... A delegate that's a bit slack, when he jumped the fence, he was a bit of a slack boss, he wasn't a bad bloke. <laughs> but, but when I had a delegate that's a union official that was that was um, very strong, when he jumped the fence, become a boss, he become just as bad the other way. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go for the weak link every yep, time. Yep, yeah. Yep. And the other thing that I've noticed, some of the people who used to come back to me in crane hire back in them days, as they bought their own cranes these days, they're probably not the most wonderful employers either. <laughs> We're trying to get yourself in this trouble there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a fair few of them running around. But uh, Well, that's the other thing, Ralph. Back in Pat Preston's day and my day, the crane hire industry was virtually governed by, don't quote me, a dozen or a few more crane eye companies and so if you wanted to have a stoppage or something you could you could always pull them together you know but today there's only one man band around it'd be very hard to look after now yeah that's true now in terms of cranes and the future what are your thoughts on the possibilities of robotics and effectively people operating cranes second hand through uh, technology rather than actually hands on. You think that's a distinct possibility or is there always going to be a human factor that has to be in there? I think there's always going to be a human factor in it but go back a few years ago with Chernobyl in Russia all those cranes were done by remote control back in them days Mm. and so I think it'd take a smarter man than me to know what the future's going to bring but I do think that the and the other thing, I think big companies never really survived that much in, in the crane industry. 
they've always been smaller people come up and run and then if they get too big another disappearance somebody else comes along but you know Brambles was a good example Brambles were going to change the world but Brambles went out the door backwards didn't they and you've got your smaller companies that's survived and because they've probably got more flexibility and one of the hard things about looking after the crane industry I found was the bosses and the blokes were too close together and the bosses had too much influence on the bloke to what the what you could as a union official. In other words, you know, if, if we've got a new pretty crane coming, if you want to do the right thing, you know, you'll get that new pretty crane and that you know, they used to keep the blokes on side a lot, you know. Yes, definitely size does have mm. a a difference and the cranes getting bigger is also having an effect on how a crane operator sees his role, his uh, position in the whole scheme of things. Well, back in my day, you used to get a little ticket to drive a crane and you used to drive a little crane and you used to make little stuff-ups. Today, you go to school, you get a big ticket, you drive a big crane, you start at the top, make big fuck-ups and work your way down. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is a problem. (laughs) But in terms of your time in the industry, do you regret it at all? No. And would you say even the worst of times, there was always something a bit more than just a job in this industry? Or am I trying to put rose glasses on on the past? I suppose... There's no saying, once a cop, always a cop. I think once you got involved in the building industry, you're always involved in it. I might have come out of crane hire, but, you know, I've become very involved in the whole build industry. And I made some really good friends out of that build industry, you know, the people I cherish now. But, um, no, I think once you've been in another industry, you want to be in. And we did, during this discussion, reflect on the the amount of government intervention in terms of unions and all the rest of it. Uh, What do you reckon about the proposition that as government and the industry's got bigger and the interference has got bigger and the world has changed a bit in its outlook on how things are, is it as much fun in the industry, you know, the jokes and the comradeship that used to go on compared to as you experienced towards the end of your time? No, I don't think you can have the same fun and what we used to have in the industry, you know. And we always used to like to look at the chemical side of things a bit as you, as you went along and kept a bit of a bright bright atmosphere about it. And I think today they'd rather run you into the courthouse rather than have a joke with you. you know? I think that's, that's one of the sad things about the industry now. And are there any um, times or jobs or projects in the industry that you can recall now which you think were a success in terms of a good job well done by the, the employer and uh, and appreciated and uh, you know in, <laughs> indulged by the uh, employees yep I think in the civil industry what I'd class as good jobs and you and me done together was projects like the crazy burn bypass Stage one of Geelong bypass. Stage three might have been a bit different. Stage two, but but stage one 
they were good jobs and we had a lot of fun there and I think we made a lot of gains there too, you know. And of course, on the refurbished along road years ago, we made some gains there, Ralph. And you might remember, we had trouble with traffic speeding past the blokes working beside them. And I think it was yourself and we said, uh, Vic Rhodes, we said, um, you've got to get this traffic slowed down. I said, oh, no, it's going to take seven days to do that. We can't do that. And so we said, I think you might have said, um, all right, we'll see you in seven days. And next day it all happened. But on those traffic management things, there's traffic management now where traffic slowed down. And it was bloody dangerous before. Yeah. You work inside, beside your bum up against the road and people going past 100, 120 k's an hour. Just, <laughs> uh, just digressing a little bit from that, uh, I can remember one of our stewards being on a section up uh, near Altona Meadows and uh, they were in the middle of the road and the sheds were in the middle of the road and next minute they were joined by a surfboard that had come off a car yep. at going 100 k past it. Yep. And, and, and I like, think like a missile. And I think... A dog trailer come off a tipper once and went over the barriers too. Yep. Oh yeah. Yes. The, so I think I think that's one thing in the civil industry that it took a bit of convincing, but we did um, do a bit. Now a lot of companies are making money out of all this traffic management. Oh yes. Mm? Yep. There's yep. a lot of people who've never worked in the industry or getting jobs on traffic management. Oh, there is. Yep. yep. And good yep. money too. Yep. And that's the other thing that's changed in the industry a lot, Ralph. When you think about it. We had a big blue years ago because quite a few riggers, you go to visit them in the hospital, had fallen and no vegetables. Mm. We had a big campaign on walking the steel. And I remember we were told, how do you think we're going to build this place? You couldn't bring it in there because all this bloody stuff around them. Blokes were walking through the mud and Christ knows what and hanging by the air trying to put Berlins up. And, and uh, anyway, eventually they got the message. So what do they do now? They put a concrete slab down for the floor. And they put the steel up. So it's a lot easier putting the steel up like that. And everything works a bit faster. I bring a boom lift in and the job's made in no time. <laughs> yes, it has changed in that regard. But that was all done by the union. That was fighting the employers on that one was a big thing. Now, any other jobs you'd like to mention? Well, we've been involved in a few. Eastlink, CityLink. Eastlink. City Link, Westgate, yep. Freeway, any number of times. Yes, yeah. Yes, there's been a lot of them. Yep, yep. And I remember the um, interchange on the Calder Freeway. Yep. Where they had boom gates up and CT cameras on, making sure we don't go onto site and talk to the blokes. And uh, and then there was Safety Beach down at uh, Mount Martha. Yes. Where ballers did everything they could that. <laughs> Yes, there was. There were a few blues over the journey, but at the end of it all, I would have thought that you're sounding more positive about what was achieved in the last thirty years or so than negative. Very much so. Very much so. It's like everything, Ralph. You know, things are a lot better today than what they was thirty years ago. As technology's come on and and work and has improved and all the rest of it. For a long time, we didn't get much support out of WorkSafe, in my view, or the Department of Labor. But hopefully they've come on more on board now. They used to seem to follow us around the sites where we had a bit of industrial muscle, they follow us around. But where we couldn't get the sites, they used to keep away too. Yeah. But I do think that 
hope that that's improved a hell of a lot, you know. And one last sort of question about technology. Did you get on top of your mobile phone? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, or- take, that'll take time. <laughs> the organiser's cursed. <laughs> Everyone can ring you, but you stuff up yep. ringing them. Yep. That, that, was a, that was always a problem too, Ralph. As mobile phones come on board, you used to have time to think about, you'd know about a blue, you'd have time to think about the blue, and you'd be able to go and talk to your members about what was going on. With mobile phones, the phone would go and be the bloody basket in year first. Yeah, yeah. We had a secretary that used to love people getting into his year first. A little bit of filtering. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> but uh, in terms of all the issues that uh, an organiser faces today, obviously it has changed even in the last 10 years, but do you think there was any particular problem that you had trouble with as an organiser from start to finish, other than bosses? Depends what you mean. Well, I... I would have thought that there are some things that you just cannot resolve. You cannot be everywhere all the time. Even the best of issues, you just have not got the time to cover them all. And I would have thought the industry is even bigger now and, and much harder to deal with. Do you think that's... Or, or did you think? Yeah. do you think in those days we were more in control of the industry and how we interacted with it? I think, I think you're um, and probably able to keep more in control of it now with mobile phones and all the rest of it. But it used to be very difficult. You'd be up in the country somewhere and you get a phone call about some site in the city and that was very hard to fix by remote, you know. Mm. But I think in later years I probably enjoyed doing a lot of those civil sites where you were more independent what it was if you're just working in the CBD building sites, you know. I think that was a good thing, you know. The owner-operators, they were good blokes, but there wasn't much support there, which is sort of sad, because nearly all these escapades are all owned by owner-operators now, aren't they? Yeah. But in terms of pluses and minuses, at the end of the, uh, the journey, I would rate you as a... Uh, 9 out of 10, for perseverance and persistence with even the worst of bosses. And I'll relate a little story to the listeners. We were up at uh, Craigie Burn or Crazy Burn Bypass, as it's sometimes called, and uh, we were having a discussion with the project manager and uh, you did a wobbly and walked out and left me there. And when I got out afterwards, I found you in the shed waiting with a cup of coffee. And do you remember what your words were? Got no idea. (laughs) Murray, what was going on? And your answer was, I'd run out of things to say, so I thought I'd better get out. (laughs) (laughs) The boss was totally confused and agreed to everything. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the sort of uh, aspect uh, of... The industry which I remember fondly and uh, I'm sure you do too. Yep. I remember one time with Elliot Simons, who's a, not a bad supervisor up around Aubrey Wodonga, and I used to go pretty well with him. 
Um, I was with Brendan Murphy one day. We got down to Warnable, and they're doing the Warnable Police Station. And uh, this black shirt fronted Brendan Murphy. So full hardy move. <laughs> so we made a bit of an issue of it. And Brendan himself was going down to Portland from there. So I got the word out, and we got bands put on all over the place. L.U. Simons about this bloke having to go, Brendan Murphy. And this supervisor, I knew, I forget his name now, but he was a good bloke. He kept trying to rings to resolve it. Of course, analog phones out them days. <laughs> and as we went along, I keep saying, "Ah, oh, the bloody thing's dropped out again." The bloody thing, because they get all frustrated. But all the way down, we were killing ourselves laughing. So we used to have a bit of fun like That's that, it. but. <laughs> Today, I don't think you're supposed to do that anymore. <laughs> well, you're not even allowed to use bad language now, mm. even in industrial disputes. But we have uh, come out the other end, Murray, yeah. and you are now enjoying retirement. It's 12 years has passed quickly. Yeah, 12 and a bit, yep, yep. And you're still keeping contact with people in the industry? Well, that's one of the good things about the industry. And I'm not talking about cranberries, I'm talking about full stop. Yeah. Over 12 years since I retired, the union still looks after me. They still stop in touch with me. Mm. Brendan Pitt called and saw me the other day. Get all the mail and all the rest of it. But, but no, the union's been good to me. Now, you tell me another place you can go and work. There's not many of them that still look after you all those years, you know. And I guarantee if I like to bring up the union with the problem now, they'd do, do what they could for me, you know. And just think... <laughs> You got paid money for all those years to have fun. Yep, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. Righto, so thank you to Murray Hill. Now, as I said at the start, Murray was a long-term official of the FEDFA, which became part of the CFMEU, Construction and General, and has been in retirement, as he says, for for 12 years. And congratulations on a great uh, period of service to your fellow workers, Murray. It's 22 From, years of it. Yep, even even with yep. brambles, however bad an employer yep. was, you still uh, stuck to your guns and uh, kept it going yep. and kept it going all that time. You know, maybe, not for this, but when I worked on the Harbour Trust on the portal cranes unloading ships the first time before the tug strikes, they had this fantastic old boss, great old fellow, you know, and when there's no ships in, we had to stop on site. We weren't allowed to go off, and then he'd be working all weekend and overtime and all the rest of it. But we'd be doing homes, changing motors over in cars, underwater, fishing and making this and making that. And all Locker used to say to us was, if someone comes out from my head off, just make yourself scarce or grab a broom or anything you like, you know. And if you ever had a, a pro- home problem, he wouldn't dock you, he'd cover for you. I never heard of him again for years. Until a couple of years ago, I was talking to a neighbour of his. He lived over the road from him. At the time, he was 102. So I went and saw him. What an interesting old bloke he was. He came from Burke. He's the oldest serving member of World War II in the region. He said that, Murray, the hardest years of my life was driving sheep back in the Depression up there, you know. He had a fall. And they put him in the hospital for a couple of weeks and then breastplate and he came home again and they put him in the high care, you know. And I took Lorene up to see him. She wanted to talk to an old man about it. Well, she loved him for a start, you know. Mm. 
Used to keep going back and seeing him. God, he's a fantastic old bloke. The most interesting old fella you ever talked to. And um, anyway, this day he's a bit sick. And I said, look, we've got to go in our locker, but I'll be back to see you next week. I'll be here, he said. And he apologised to me. He said, I'm sorry, Mrs Hill, I've got a kidney tray in a sick. And they upped his morphine and he died on the Saturday at 103. But Jesus, you've never seen a boss like that. That was my first FODFA boss. He was a gem. And the organiser then was Malcolm McDonald. There you go. And <laughs> just to finish up, Malcolm McDonald will be one of the interviewees on this uh, little project which we are calling Creatures of the Industry. All about the people who come into the industry stay in the industry. They don't just blow in and blow out, make a quid and who cares. They actually stay in the industry and they love the industry. But we will be uh, interviewing a lot more people over the coming years. Thank you very much, Maury Hill, and congratulations Thank on you, Ralph. a great, great service to the union movement. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, the Concrete Gang's fill-in show for this summer. And there will be more interviews to come over the following weeks and hopefully an ongoing series well into the future. Thank you for listening. For a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA.